Welcome to Deep Dive MH370. Hello everyone, I'm Andy Tarnoff, the publisher of On Milwaukee, and I'm joined by Jeff Wise, aviation journalist, and we are on to episode 10, The Vulnerability. Welcome back, Jeff. Thanks, Andy. I can't believe we've done 10 episodes. That seems like a lot. It's moving fast, isn't it? I think it, it feels like it's moving but, fast. I hope it seems like it's moving fast. <laughs> yeah, you know, again, like some people are saying we're moving too quickly. Some people are saying we're moving too slowly. Uh, we think we're doing it at the right pace, but we're always open to feedback on that. And today, today's a doozy. I got to stop saying that at the beginning of each episode because <laughs> this no, no, really for real. One. This is the we said this, this is before. the big one. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's going up exponentially. <laughs> well, it's it's oh boy. This one's a lot. This is a big one. I mean, this is definitely the most controversial one, and um, I'm a little bit, um, I just want people to be aware that what we're going to be talking about today is something that uh, is considered very controversial, it even makes some people angry. Um, we're, so I want to really emphasize, this is, this is, we're talking about an interpretation of events. We're not claiming that this is necessarily true, but it's a possibility that we're going to, that we're going to talk about. And so... Um, people uh, just have to listen along and, and judge for yourself. This is not, we're not going to take the entire show down this episode, down this particular alley, but there are aspects of this case that are very mysterious and we're going to have to just talk about them. So this is, this is not your theory. This is not my theory. We're not getting there yet. But what we are going to do starting now is we are going to talk about some things that you discovered along your journey and then we're going to provide some background about, um, historical precedents for this kind of stuff and we're going to kind of uh, set the table to to really get into it uh, the reason we're calling this episode the vulnerability is because we're asking ourselves if there was a, a vulnerability that could have been exploited to answer some of these uh, previously unexplained unexplainable questions when when nothing else seems to make sense you you look at something else so tell me you know because back in episode seven we talked about how bfo data worked showed that the plane went south, but you, you made an apology, but something didn't sit right with you. Yeah. Well, I initially, of course, had gone out on a limb and said, it seems to me like the plane went north. And that turned out to be wrong. The, the, the BFO data unequivocally said that the plane went south. Okay. The math is a little bit complicated. I think we walked listeners sure through did. it on an earlier yeah. episode, but once you understand how the math works, it's very unequivocal. The plane, in order to have created the data that it, that it did, that it sent back to Inmarsat, it must have been traveling to the south. Um, and so once I realized that I said, okay, this is what it means. I was wrong to think that it went south. But as the story continued to unfold, strange revelations occurred, which taken together raised new questions. Now, once again, with the touchstone that I'll keep coming back to with MH370 is that this is a deeply strange case. Again and again, things happen that it's very difficult to explain and that either were a result of an incredible coincidence or string of coincidences, or someone or something did something very odd, very unusual. Now, remember, this is the case that nothing like this has ever happened before. I mean, it's all weird, right? It's all mysterious. But the fact that the SDU had been turned off and then turned back on again, that is is something that... uh, investigators believe like that that one is not so much in question insofar as nothing is not in question but 
sort of UFOs. But that you know that is that is the thing that 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 is is super duper weird. We didn't find out about it until a couple months after the plane disappeared, when the authorities released a report that mentioned that the only really plausible way to explain the pattern of, of signals that had been received was that somebody had powered it off somehow. This this box had been powered down and then powered back up again. It remains highly contentious to this day, highly contentious as to how this could have happened, whether it's something that a pilot would do or that very few pilots would know how to do or be motivated to do. Even if you look now in the comments of our page today, if you look at what's happening on Twitter as people are discussing our podcast, people get very angry even at the suggestion that there's something really weird about this. But you talk to pilots and a lot of pilots cannot really explain how this happened. So this is the one. St- OK, let's talk about the, a bunch of things happening, which together made me wonder if there was something else very different happening about this case. Number one, the, the SDU getting rebooted. So first of all, your your former colleagues in the independent group, um, they said this was a there's a simple answer to this. They said that they wanted to make sure that nobody from the cabin or the passengers could use the, the sat phone to call for help. But th- and that that would have done the trick. Right. But that's not the only way. And that's not the easy way. That's not like the way you, you turn off the phones. Well, people have come up with various explanations for why somebody might have wanted to reboot the SDU. And I think we talked about this in the earlier episode. Um, one of them is that they wanted to see, that somebody wanted to save power yeah. from the engine, so it turned off the entire electrical system. Another more recently mooted idea was that somebody wanted to prevent someone from using the SATCOM, uh, that, that there's a, a handset in the cabin, and so they, and they turned off half the electrical system in order to prevent that from happening. But there's simpler ways to disable the Okay, the but, but nonetheless, so that, was, that was the first thing that you're like, uh that's a that's that's a weird weird thing. When that was when that information was released, it told us that we had made a wrong assumption because everybody had assumed that this that this system had just inadvertently been left on. Okay? So now that would have been what would have been a very simple to understand explanation suddenly becomes hard to understand. This is another case of MH370 um, you know, upsetting expectations and violating expectations, okay? And that, but that wasn't the only thing. Then some other things happened as well that, that seemed odd. One was a revelation that it turns out that in a 777, you can, that, the, that all of the electronics that run the airplane, that run the flight controls, that run the communications, everything is inside a compartment that is accessible from the cabin. All right. So you can pull back a carpet. Yeah. So let's let's just pause here just for the little reset here, because we haven't yet really talked about this. I mean, people who watch the Netflix special or documentary know that. But again, this is not this is not um, speculation. And in at the time of, of MH370's flight. One could literally go into the first class passenger section, pull up a piece of carpet and crawl down. Into the belly of the plane. That's a thing. That's right. a real thing. And it's it's true. And shortly before the plane disappeared, actually, um, an airline pilot had written a paper explaining that this vulnerability existed and he worried that it could be exploited, that somebody with nefarious intent could get down into the electronics bay and have in front of them all of the boxes, all of the computers that do everything on a plane. You're talking about Matt, Matt Will, Willamine? Must former Australian, I'm, yeah, I'm not yeah. So, sure how to okay, pronounce well, his name. Apolo- I, I, apologies to Matt. So he's a former Australian triple seven pilot. 
he talked about he has a master's thesis on this that he he put out in June 2013. And so he was already where he was trying to sound the alarm um, that this that it's possible to get in. OK, so now so that but that doesn't really directly relate to the issue that the box nope. had been um, rebooted. But it was just a fact that it had become floating around. And then another piece of the puzzle was Mike Exner explained to me. So I was like, well, how so everything hinges on this BFO data. How does this BFO data get generated we talked about that in a previous episode but where does the where does the SDU get the data that it uses to make the calculation yeah. it needs to know where it is and how the planet is moving relative to the satellite to do this doppler precompensation to change the frequency yes. how does it know where it is and how fast it's moving and mike exner one of the um, independent group members explained to me and i vividly remember where i was standing when he told me this over the phone what did he say the information yeah. comes from the electronics bay. It comes from a box called the IRS, the Inertial Reference System. And this is a, this is a system that combines information from GPS and um, inertial guidance systems. And it basically, it, it's the plane's idea of where it is and how it's moving. Just to clarify, this, this box, this computer, this server, this area it, in 2014 was in an unlocked, unsecured section underneath some carpeting in the first class section right. hypothetically right anyone who knew where it was could pull up that carpet and walk down the stairs they'd probably get in trouble but okay. you could do it okay exactly and so as mid 2014 rolls around the authorities are getting ready to spend hundreds of millions of dollars in this very ambitious and sophisticated search of the southern ocean they're going to go to this remote patch, which is three, three miles deep. And there's like mountains down there and, and crevices and stuff. And they're going to scan using sonar the, this, this pretty huge area of seabed in order to find the plane. And so as they're getting ready to do that, the question I'm asking myself is, is there any other possible way? And let me emphasize and put in italics the word possible. Is there any conceivable way that this data could have been generated other than what the authorities are assuming? Okay. And now, because of these pieces of information that have been floating around separately, put them all together. And what do you get? You have a situation in which anybody could theoretically access the electronics bay where the box is that generates the position and navigational information that gets sent to the SDU that it uses to perform the calculation. So what's happening here is we're talking about fly-by-wire, and it's not that different than the concept of drive-by-wire. It's in, in certain modern cars, planes, uh, when, right. you, when you, you know, in, a, in a car, if you turn the steering in a Prius or a Tesla or something, it's, it's, it's not doing what old-timey cars used to do it's it's a it's a computer generated response as opposed to right i'm not a automotive motive expert but it's not moving the axles and turning the wheels right so right. just like on a plane right. it's not like an old plane that has mechanical right. levers um a motorcycle is drive by wire i mean it, it like it it does things 
It does things differently than older planes. Right. When I ride my bicycle, when I turn my handlebars on my bicycle, I'm actually moving a piece of metal that's directly connected to the wheel, and that makes the whole bike turn. And cars used to be made like that. My car probably still is. I don't drive a Tesla. Nor do I. But I went flying, was it yesterday, the day before, and I was in a in a Cherokee, Piper Cherokee from like probably the 70s. And yeah, when I pull back on um, the, the controls, it's connected to a cable that's physically connected to the tail. And so you have a direct mechanical linkage. The 777 was the first plane that Boeing built that was completely fly-by-wire. It was an all-electric plane. So when you move the controls in the 777, you're actually sending a sig- electric signal to a computer that is then interpreting what you want and then translating it into signals that get sent to an actuator that moves the control services. So the, the reason you bring this up quite perspicaciously That's is that word. if you're in the electronics bay of the 777, you have total control of that airplane. Or you have, maybe, you, maybe if you're smart and you know how to hack a computer, you have the means to do everything that happens from that plane comes out of that, out of that, that electronics bay. I watched the documentary before I met you, and that's what got me into this whole thing. There, you know, there was a statement okay. by Mike Exner that said, "Yeah, that can't be done," and then he left it at that. So, so what we're basically proposing in this episode, the gist of what we're saying in episode ten right now, is that there appears to have been a vulnerability or a backdoor, depending on how what you want to call it. There was a vulnerability by which it's possible. Now, whether or not it was it was taken advantage of or not is a separate issue. But what we're what we're asking in this episode was was there a vulnerability by which it becomes less than a hundred percent certain that the BFO data that indicates that the plane went into the Southern Indian Ocean was correct was not in fact tampered right. with. So, is it impossible? No. Yeah. No. I mean, it's not. Now, it's not likely. It's never been done before. Um, but you're just we're just putting out the theory here that we is don't it know. If such a vulnerability exists, it may, it may not. But does it, is it possible that it exists? Now, there's ways to say, um, no, it can't exist because X. It, because there's a whole chain of things that has to be true in order for this idea to work. A ton right? of things. Like if this was a 767, an older generation of Boeing, this idea wouldn't work because you, you cannot take over a 767 just by taking over the electronics bay because there are mechanical linkages that a person in the cockpit can do that you can't do anything about in the right. electronics bay. Okay. Right. Now, one p- possible fault with this idea is that you cannot take over the control surfaces of a 777 from the electronics bay. And as you say, Andy, yeah. in the Netflix documentary, a Malaysia Airlines employee is on camera saying you cannot control a 777 from the electronics bay. Anyone who gets into the hatch can disable the transponder and disable the communication systems. But it is impossible to fly the aircraft from the avionics compartment. It is impossible. Um, we mentioned the influential Atlantic article that William Langevisha right. wrote. In that article, he actually says something along the lines of, you can't control a 777 from the electronics bay for reasons that are too numerous for me to mention. Well, that's no fun. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny because I'm like, I would love to hear your eight, just even one, even one, one fraction of one. You know, I don't, you don't have to go on for, and on for pages. Just give me a hint. As far as I know, no one has has 
you know, given a reason and then documented that reason. Mike has not told me how he knows. No, Boeing has not said Boeing to its, you know, to be fair, Boeing is rather. I wouldn't tell if I was Boeing either. Work. I mean, that's not something that you want to know. Oh, here's our exploit. But um... but let me let me give you some possible reasons for why this wouldn't okay. work. Right. Um, if this was an Airbus plane, wouldn't work in, in Airbus planes in, and half the planes made today yes. are Airbus. In an Airbus, the hatch into the electronics bay is in the cockpit. That, that makes sense to me. Yeah. So only the flight crew can get into it. Okay, so this whole idea wouldn't have worked if it was an Airbus and not Wait, a Boeing. Okay? Can I just ask why Boeing would have put it there? I mean, this this plane was built after 9-11, wasn't it? I mean, I literally have no idea. No, it was designed before 9-11. It's, it's a plane from the 90s. Okay, okay. So perhaps they just didn't anticipate what an unbelievably ridiculous security risk that would be. There's okay. So much All right. Okay. So anyway, so the Airbus plane, the only way to access that area is is through the cockpit. Okay. So it couldn't be a. It, this wouldn't work with an Airbus. It wouldn't work with any plane older than a triple seven. Wouldn't work with a seven five seven, a seven four seven, a seven six seven. Um, it probably would work with a seven eight seven. I don't really know. Um, at this time, there really weren't that many seven eight sevens. Um, yeah. Those, yeah so. Yeah. But it, it, the fact is it worked with this um, plane and, and it didn't work with it. It also wouldn't have worked with any um, with, with any airline that was paying for the full priced version of Inmarsat. It only because most airlines or I don't know how many airlines pay, but they, Air, Inmarsat has a higher level. It's like when you have Netflix that doesn't have ads. Yeah, versus yeah. and we talked. We, we spent a whole ads. episode talking about this, but um, nonetheless, I mean, yeah. yes, all these things would have had to line up because the classic arrow system was the one that that wouldn't have generated or or allowed the mathematicians at Inmarsat to generate these ping rings and figure this information out. They would have just simply had the information where it went, what how it went, what right, but it did, right, right, and also remember we have also talked about how it has to be a box from Talus. Yes. And not Rockwell? Yes. Because of the way that the pre-compensation <laughs> yeah, so, so, again, the aging the aging satellite with the wobbliness and the, the – I mean, okay, it's like a lot of things are lining also, up. Also, the mathematicians – and th so this is another thing. This, this, whole, this whole idea that somebody might have accessed this box and made it – and so, the, so the, the gist of the idea is that there's a way that you could, because of this existence of this backdoor, this vulnerability, there is a way – that if you were super sophisticated and nefarious and clever and aggressive, you could take this plane and alter the BFO data to make it look like the plane was going south when it was really going north. This is the statement that drives my critics absolutely crazy. And, and yeah, I, I mean, of course, they, they, they think it's preposterous and they, I mean, I've it makes I've them seen, mad. I've seen the anger. <laughs> it makes them really I've, mad. Seen, I've seen I've seen how how aggressively they respond to you. The question is whether somebody could have made a false trail of electronic breadcrumbs to mislead investigators, right? But this idea would only work if there was a whole cha daisy chain of things about this flight. But it turns out that all of those things are true. And so if we're proposing that it's possible to take planes of a certain kind and, and create this false trail, it's very rare. Maybe this is the only flight in the world that passes all of these requirements. There's one more requirement I just want to throw in there because this, this, this method only dis discriminates northern routes 
and southern moving routes. It doesn't discriminate east-west routes. Some people want specul have even now speculated that this plane was being hijacked to like Mecca or something, as some kind of an Islamist plot. Mark. This data couldn't discriminate east-west like that. Okay, this particular vulnerability we're proposing is a very very specific. We're not because there's people who have come forward and say, oh, the Americans don't like um, China, so they shot it down. Or, you know, maybe somebody was trying to maybe it wasn't mangosteens on the in the in the in the cabin or in the in the cargo hold. Maybe it was gold and they wanted to steal it. Those kind of very vague ideas about, um, you know, nefarious intent and hijacking. They're very vague. And so if people who dismiss them as conspiracy theorists have something to say. Because it's just a very vague notion. We're making a very, very specific observation here. And we're not saying it necessarily happened, but we're saying it appears that this whole chain of seeming coincidences add up to a particular vulnerability that only this plane had and that it could have allowed someone to do this thing that we're proposing that makes people mad. All right, Jeff. I am not even going to let us go there yet because now you're starting to talk about things that we haven't even introduced to the audience yet and i don't think i don't think we're at the spot yet where we talk about the likelihood of this until we talk about the theory and concept of hacking and this is where i'm going to okay. nerd out just a little bit and we're not we may devote an entire episode to this but i want to talk a little bit about what this means how people are familiar with it what people think is preposterous and and things that have actually happened that people think are preposterous and what's possible and what isn't. Because if you don't buy into or accept that stuff, then what you're talking about right now is unfathomable. Yet hacking is not a new concept. It's been happening for a long time. I, I, I did a little bit of research on this. You know, in World War II, you know, we had the Enigma machine. That is definitely not the kind of hacking that we're talking about. But, I mean, it changed the course of World War II. But it's a kind of hacking in the same sense that like somebody figured out how a system worked so that they could subvert it. Exactly. So uh, there are a bunch of other examples, high tech, low tech ones. Uh, you know, there's the fancy bear DNC hack in the Clinton, um, the Trump race. Uh, the, right. You know, some of this stuff is as simple as phishing or uh, brute force. You know, all sorts of stuff. Um, but then it gets to the point where every time I hear you talk to me offline about about where this is, about w what you think might have happened, one specific example keeps coming back to me over and over again. And I'm wondering if you remember in 2015, uh, the San Bernardino uh, workplace shooting. Remember that happening? Right. I do So that was a guy uh, whose name was Saeed Rizwan. And he, it was, I mean... He, I think he killed 14 people, and the FBI wanted his um, his iPhone. This was an Islamic couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they and, and the FBI wanted to see what was going on, and his phone was locked. It was running iOS nine. Now, this is, this is not like the first iPhone here. I mean, it's a, you know, this was many generations. The ninth, you know, iOS nine or iOS nine. This is the ninth generation of this stuff. But Apple said very, very loudly and clearly that their phones were unhackable and the fbi said tough right. do it anyway this is the this is the modern equivalent of the enigma machine yeah like like very that like state of the art most modern encryption. apple said it apple said not only can it not be hacked by you it can't be hacked by us if you're asking us to build a workaround 
to break into our phone. Not only could we not do it, but even if we did do it, we'd be making our phones less sophisticated. Can't be done. So, you know, they're trying to get this court order. The FBI is and Apple's pushing back as they do. Um, you know, that's their, that's their line. Uh, you know, all phones can be hacked except for the iPhone. Well, so the FBI goes to this Australian company. All roads lead to Australia. They they are the they are the North Pole of all conspiracies. Um, so they go to Australia. This Australian company called Azimuth Security, and they they say hack it for us. And they get uh, two guys um, to uh, for nine hundred thousand dollars. And they, and I'm going to try to explain this, but basically they find this this um, they get the phone in their in their in their possession, and they find this exploit through the Mozilla. Um, browser operating system or uh, uh, browser and and using the lightning port on the iPhone they basically uh, apply two more exploits and then they have control over the phone and and they crack it which was was, which was believed impossible it was believed impossible FBI says okay good we've got what we need thanks because it's so lucrative if you can figure out to find an exploit you know, it's people will pay you good, good money to like do the impossible. Yeah, yeah. Basically. So uh, they called it Condor, and um, it's they called the the, the exploit. Yeah, yeah, Condor. yeah. And there are all sorts of different kinds Operation of Condor. yeah. There are all sorts of different kinds of hacking things. Uh, this one I, I w- would consider a zero day exploit, which basically means mm-hmm. uh, getting into software or hardware before the developers realize that it's hackable. Because after they do, right. they zero day, they, zero day. Exactly. It's a window of vulnerability. Zero day means how many days have elapsed between the developer being aware of, of a vulnerability and the hacker taking advantage of it. In this case, it's zero days because you find out about it because. Yeah. It's so, I mean, like Apple fixed this as soon as they found out about this, like they were pissed. I mean, they, you right. know, they're, they're suing these guys like, you know, but they, they, they patched it and that and that specific patch solve the problem but not before so people who say this system is unhackable apple found out about it the germans found out about during world war ii your assumptions about the safety of your system might be wrong things clever your opponents might be more clever than you or might be more um resourceful than right. you they're think. white hat hackers those are like the good guys who look around for exploits and then they find them and then they tell the good guys and then they're a black hat ones you know we know about um we know russia's totally into this so this is you know whether you believe in in election interference in the united states or not uh the, the russians have an interest in this kind of stuff and so does the united states they they, they have a uh, uh, stuxnet, stuxnet yeah. right there was a, like a u.s israeli yep. yes, attack yes. on the um, that's exactly Iranian. what it was a cyber weapon it was a worm and it, it may still right. be in, in service, basically, but it was a joint developed, and they've like kind of admitted it, and they kind of haven't. But it, it like it it took these Iranian uh, nuclear facilities offline. Like it's, there's all sorts of different kind of hacking things out there, and I I just find it really naive for anyone to say, sorry, it can't be done. Well, and also remember too, I think it's important to realize that not all hacking involves computer systems. The um, there was a great documentary made about how the Russians managed to tamper with the urine collection bottles that the anti-doping agency used to try to keep um, athletics uh, pure from doping. 
And the Swiss company had made these bottles that, you know, once you screw it on the top, you couldn't, you couldn't remove it. There was just no way. It was impossible. And yet the, the Russians figured out how to do it so they could continue doping their athletes. And again, it's like everyone's like, it can't be done. And then next thing you know, it's yeah, done. Yeah. It so I guess I would, uh, what I'm getting to, and we can go into way more detail about this if people want us to. But what I'm getting at is yeah. that because it hasn't been done is not a reason to say it can't be done. And you've right. identified these right. opportunities, these coincidences, these uh, this Venn diagram of, of, of weirdness. Right. And I, I don't know if 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 the Atlantic article doesn't says it, it's yeah, like to tell me why this is off the table. I don't I don't get it. An important point to that I really want to draw a line under in this episode is that the existence of this vulnerability is not an idea that is mine alone. And it's not an idea that I developed alone. And I really, the, one of the key architects of this idea is Victor Ianello, a member of the independent group who has been very critical of me um, on Twitter and, and so forth. That's fine. He's allowed to disagree with me. But he um, wrote a paper uh, explaining, actually carrying the ideas further than anyone else ever has. He's, he had the insight that just by changing a single parameter in the satellite data unit, you could make the plane look like it was going south when it was really going north. I hasten to add that Victor does not think that this vulnerability was exploited. In fact, he gets really mad when I talk about the idea that this that this vulnerability existed and might have. I been would exploited. ask him himself, uh, himself, but, but he doesn't want to come on this thing. But he's saying that he doesn't he's want saying, to come on show. and he's very critical about this. That's true. So he said that it's. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that's all I can do here. He 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 said that it's possible, but he doesn't think it happened. Is that what you're telling me? No, he says it's definitely a hundred percent. It was. He says it's a zero, there's a zero percent chance that it was exploited, and I think we can talk about that in a separate episode. And and I don't want to. This is not a podcast about this vulnerability or the idea that the yeah. plane definitely went north instead of south. But this. But I just want to. We're talking about it in this episode, and we'll talk about more. Uh, or I, I should say, we're going to talk about less controversial stuff going forward. I really want to give all listeners and viewers a comprehensive understanding of the evidence in this case and what it means. But what we have, what we're, what we're introducing in this episode is an alternate lens through which all of the evidence of this case can be looked at. So things that are very um, coincidental, um, if you assume that the pilot took it without having any idea about Inmarsat data, then the then then the turning on of the SDO, for instance, is kind of baffling and kind of hard to explain and just sort of a mystery that you have to live with. But if you imagine that there was an exploit, then the turning on of the SDO makes a lot of sense because it's just somebody who went in, turned the box off, changed the printers, and turned it back on again. Um, and there's a lot of other things that, as evidence that will emerge that we'll look at in the future, that make a lot of different that 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 that, that make one kind of sense one way and a different kind of sense the other way. Right. So so this was almost like um, a preface to something that we're going to talk about more. But w the reason we're doing it this way is so we can explain why we uh, why vul vulnerabilities are not a batshit crazy idea, and then we will get into what those vulnerabilities are. You teased it a little bit. There's a whole lot more data and there's a whole lot more specific detail that we can talk about that, that starts to reinforce why you think that this was a possibility. But I think that's another episode. It's interesting. It's interesting, Andy, that when 
the in when Inmarsat Inmarsat first started looking at the data that they had, they wondered: Is somebody pranking us? Is somebody has somebody tampered with this evidence? And I asked them why they put that idea aside, and they basically said, "Well, because we did our analysis, and the analysis gave us a clear answer." And so they basically didn't think that anybody was sophisticated enough to pull off an attack that would leave behind data that left a clear picture of where the plane And they're right went. that probably not a lot of people like could some, do somebody it. Could have, I mean, there's, there's not, a, not a whole bunch of people could kind of pull off that level of sophistication, but I just refuse to accept that nobody could do it and believing that nobody could do it is the reason that nobody did it. That's a great point. And when I first started thinking about this idea, um, I thought, well, you would have to be almost superhumanly clever to, to do this. But as the years went by and I did more reading and more research, I realized, and I started to write about the field of electronic warfare, which, which is a very active field and like lots of really interesting things are yeah. happening with drones and they're, they're, they're hacking into drones to For shoot sure. them down or take yeah. them over. Um, but there's this entire industry called electronic warfare, which has to do with messing with other people's systems and other pieces signals in a way um, that confuses them. And it's a very bread and butter approach to alter Doppler signals. You know, if you're flying into someone's territory and their radar is bouncing off of you, you can measure that incoming radar and retransmit it at a different frequency to make it seem like you aren't there or that you're traveling at impossible Well, I guess speeds. you just gave us material for another episode, but... That can be a <laughs> whole same, other episode, Same with but, asymmetrical but no. warfare, you know, like you don't always understand what the bad guy's up to and why, you know, right. so... You know, right. there's a lot to talk about here. But I think a really, I keep saying there's a really there's many important, important thing. things. I have here. a lot of things that seem save really it. important. Save it. But I'm just kidding. Go on. Well, I th- this this is this is not looking too far ahead. But in the in in the Netflix documentary, my idea is discussed, and the uh, there's a person from the Australian uh, search agency who says that uh, yeah. opinions are like assholes. Everyone's got one, yeah. which is kind of a mean dig. Yeah. But it also just shows that they have not understood my my point at all. They don't even know what I'm talking about. The point of this podcast is to is to explain to people an idea that is a little bit complicated. Well, it's complicated enough that the the Australians who are looking for this plane don't even under, understand. It's this very idea. complicated. But the gist of this idea is that it's not a hundred percent certain that this that this data wasn't tampered with. We know of a way that it's physically possible for it to be tampered with. So whatever that whatever value you want to assign to that possibility, it's not zero. Well, that's why we're doing this. I mean, you're right. The Netflix documentary. I thought it was really good, but it was three and a half hours long, and we're on. Pfft, you know, our 10th hour of this, and we're still barely (laughs) scratching the surface. So again, we're going to make separate episodes of this. Uh, I I know you have so much more to talk about, and I do too, but what are we going to talk about in episode 11? TBD. There's so many things to say, and I think I need to process my brain a little bit. (laughs) You and I will discuss it. There's a bunch of things. I don't want to make a promise that's not going to be true, but there's, there's much... Look, a door has just opened, and... We're going to talk about something else. I don't want this to become a conspiracy theory show, but I just want people to know that there's now another lens that we can look at all this data from. 
So as the as the authorities go forward, maybe we'll talk about how they decided where exactly to look as they're getting ready. That's to a great segue to the, the fact that, again, and we're saying this every episode, but this is a collaborative thing. So there are a whole bunch of ways to interact with us, get in touch with us, not just yell right. at us on Twitter. Suggest. Yeah, so obviously, you're, whatever platform you're watching on, you know this, but you can be watching this on YouTube. You can be watching this on Facebook. You can be listening to it on Apple Podcasts. You can be reading our, our blog and our Substack uh uh, discussion and forum at deepdivemh370.com. The point is, we are paying attention to the, these comments and we're wrapping them into future recordings because we record this thing just a few days before it comes out. I mean, now my job is to go sit down and you know cobble it all together, but um, it's it's great because it's really timely. So the, again, my philosophy on media throughout Milwaukee for the last 25 years is that media is journalism is not a sermon it's a conversation we're not we are sitting oh i'm sitting in my basement but we're generally speaking not sitting in our basements uh just telling people this is the way it is this is this is this is a two-way you know discussion so so i would love to hear more through the comments and the way that happens is by liking subscribing following interacting with us telling us we're crazy but then tell us why we're crazy or asking us to look into something else and you know we just very well might do it and thank you by the way to all the people that have subscribed and liked and commented um we really appreciate your support um it's really exciting for us i mean it's i've been able to rethink about this and 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 dive back into it in a way that is is really fun and exciting for me And, and it's been really great working with andy on this so it's really a project. It's a communal project, and that's really I'm having a great so time. I mean, that's, to everyone, yeah. and thank you to Andy because you have done incredible Thanks, Jeff. Work. I mean, this is really this is definitely hard. you know part of our real jobs, but this isn't the only thing we do. So it, it's it, it's a lot of you know squeezing it in on nights and weekends, but it's it's super fascinating. And if we go somewhere with this, if we continue to go somewhere with this, then we you know I don't know if we're going to change the world, but we're going to try. We will go someplace with this. We're going to take everyone who sticks with us. We're going to, we, look, we are on a roller coaster ride, and we've just kind of come down the first hill. So there's a lot of twists and turns ahead, and we're excited to co- for you to come along with okay. us on it. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Deep Dive MH370, Episode 10, The Vulnerability. Check it out next Thursday as we drop the next episode, which will be Episode 11, TBD. We'll catch up with you soon. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, guys.